0: Speaking, coming to you in Second Life, this is Jimbo Hoyer, talking to you about the future and the past of American politics, and I'm here with Rick Perlstein. Rick, welcome to Second Life. How are you doing? Hey, Jim. It's Pearlstein. Pearlstein, I hate that. <laughs> you spell it right and you say it wrong, and I asked you seven times and I still got it wrong. Pearlstein, I apologize. All right. Thanks for we're, doing this. We're here talking about Nixonland which is the best book of political history I've read in a very long time. Um, It's the most densely and most thoughtfully put-together piece of work that I've ever, frankly, ever read in this topic. And as a couple of people have said, one of them in email to me, it is the most page-turning piece of political history I've ever seen. How did you get this page-turning thing going as well as the density and the richness?
1: Wow. Well, I I really don't really imagine in my neurotic heart of hearts that people are going to want to pay attention to me unless I am carefully really entertaining.
0: <laughs> well, I wanted to do this in, like, three pieces. I wanted to talk to you first about process and then about content and then about re- reviews. So I want to start with process. Mm-hmm. Seven years you spent on this. I mean, you know, it's hard for us to imagine what it's like to spend seven years hoping that something you put together will work out. So what, did it, what was it like? How did you put this together?
1: Well, on one level, it was you know, an absolute joy. I mean, waking up in the morning was just so exciting and just removing myself into this world and uh you know, just basically reading old newspapers and magazines and documents every day. Just basically amassed a giant, giant pile of stuff. I knew some basic themes, I knew some events I wanted to cover. And in fact I'm 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 already doing it now for the third book in the series and just basically reading books, taking tons of notes, making this kind of giant pile and then kind of
0: shaping the pile into something meaningful, if that you makes any sense. You say the third book in the series. You're, of course, referring back to your Goldwater book, yeah, which is out of print, and selling for $160 of copy on Amazon. So what's the third book in the, in the trilogy?
1: The third book is going to start with the Watergate trial in the spring of 1973 and the the conviction of the burglars, and it's going to go to the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. Ah, so the
0: end of the 70s. The seventies started, as we all know, when Kennedy was assassinated, and ended. And the sixties ended when um, when when Nixon resigned, and the eighties began. Then, and I'm sorry, the seventies began then, <laughs> and ended when Reagan was elected. So you're covering the. 60s.
1: Why don't we just throw, throw out the, the the analytic concept of decades altogether?
0: Well, no, the, the the decade cuts are not really exactly by the zeros; they're by what happens, and we all know that. So you spent a lot of time then listening to the tapes. Yeah. And it's hard to see know. the tapes. I mean it's hard to get there, it's hard to do it, but it's extraordinary being able to hear what's happening live. Kind of Yeah. Imagine if your office had a
1: microphone and everything you said during your work day was recorded for posterity. Uh it's it's unbelievable. I mean, as a historian, it's it's almost like going to Fantasy Island. I mean, it's like, you know, uh, Mr. Rourke, I wanna be able to listen to everything president nixon said from february of 1971 to election day on 1972 okay i I hereby grant you that fantasy you know it takes a lot of concentration the sound quality isn't great i didn't listen to a ton of them but um you know there's this unbelievable needle in the haystack movements that make you realize that if you could sit there and listen to listen to them for three years you could somehow uncover the the secret of the universe i mean at one point Nixon is planning the wedding of his daughter, and I always think, you know, poor Pat Nixon. She didn't even get to plan her own daughter's wedding, you know, because it was a comp- it was a completely a political event. He's going over the guest list with Bob Haldeman, and this is in the spring of 1971. And Bob Haldeman says, "Are we going to be inviting Ray Price?" Now, Ray Price was one of his speechwriters, and he says, "No, of course not. We're gonna we're not going to invite Ray Price." If we invite Ray Price, we have to invite that cocksucker, Bill Sapphire.
0: Yeah, cocksucker wasn't sort of praise, yeah. And it, it, it,
1: it, 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 it's, it's hilarious because you're like, wow, Bill Sapphire has built his whole career. on dining out on, you know, his intimacy with Richard Nixon. And suddenly I just learned the secret that Richard Nixon couldn't stand him. And, and you, you, you're just
0: thinking, wow.
2: That's a I great, just segue, my whole, my
0: great segue to my next question because the Haldeman Diaries.
2: Yes, also
0: um, also unbelievable. Was was an important. I was wondering how important a source it was. I mean, it would seem to me kind of a foundation, capstone source. It's unbelievable,
1: and it's even more unbelievable because when they were published, they were expurgated. But now they have a CD-ROM version.
2: I have that one. uh, Yeah,
1: well, you're you're a buff man. Um, So, for example. One of the things excised from the printed diaries, which are you know perfectly good to buy and pers- perfectly fascinating and have lots of shenanigans and chicanery, one of the things was, that was excised was you know Haldeman saying something like the boss went through his theory again about the gen- genetic inferiority of black people. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and you
2: know and, and
1: and and you know like but even in the the published diaries you can see them planning to. to bribe George Wallace to run as a Democrat, you know, using uh, Billy Graham as their go-between. I mean, it's just – can you imagine if we could see this stuff with Bush?
0: Well, no, no, if we could see this with Bush. But it's not clear But he hasn't ever told anybody anything except it just happened. Or Cheney. Um, well, Clinton, too, frankly. I mean, you'd like to have that same fly on the wall with Clinton. But the Haldeman diaries are as close to a tape as you can get. They're extremely um, clear. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you call yourself R.N. in this in this avatar, but he called him P. And P. He thought this, P.
1: said that, yeah. And, and uh, it's pretty much a day-by-day window into every sort of political move they made.
0: Uh, very clear. And so I was wondering how big a role it played as a foundation for the work. Well, one of the weird things about it
1: stylistically, since we're talking about method, is once he becomes president, certainly by, by the spring of 1971 you have these tapes his life is so closely recorded and documented so I was really worried that the book would be, feel very unbalanced and that you can kind of get inside Richard Nixon's head once you get to 69 and the Haldeman diaries and 71 and the tapes but for like 66 67 68 you know it would just kind of feel like he was a cipher so one of the stylistic challenges was to balance it that way you know, it's like you can find you know his inner life. You know, it's just uh, with an unbelievable depth and complexity. If you're writing about him as president,
0: and well, when, I, uh, when I saw you at the book talk in uh, at Borders, you talked about the relation with um, Kissinger and how they would literally spend hours—three
1: hours—they had like they would have like three-hour conversations going over every little
0: chat and tittle of the geostrategic situation
1: you know, and. Talking uh, about-
0: Small geopolitical incidents like, you know, Indonesia, Malaysia. Zambia or something like that. Right. And
1: how they fit into the Cold War puzzle. I mean, his intelligence comes out,
0: you know, so crazy. Well, that's one of the things that comes through is how shrewd and smart he was. I'm going to switch now to content. Mm-hmm. We talk about process. and am going to talk about content in the book. The first thing, of course, is the idea of Nixon as an Orthogonian right. versus the Franklins. And I put up a post at Daily Coast today talking about how, you know, people – Talk about the southern strategy, but it was preceded um, at the very latest by 1952, when or you know back when he was at Whittier, and he recognized that there is a large population resentful of the people who run things.
1: Yeah, and well, that me if you heard me, guys, because I've, I've told this story so many times on the radio, and it's been told in reviews. So, you know, uh, stand up if you don't want to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> this is my first time in Second Life. But um, basically, he, uh, like I said, was brilliant. He worked three times as hard as everyone else his whole life. And he got a scholarship when he was a young high school student at Whittier, you know, in Whittier, California, a small Quaker town in California, to go to Harvard. And he was all set to go, but his family couldn't afford, basically, the train ticket. So he was left behind, and he had to go to this little college in his hometown, Whittier College. And, of course, he bore a resentment, for Harvard all his life. You know, you can also hear him on the tape saying we should only hire people from state schools or Midwestern schools. You know, George Schultz was from the University of Chicago. That's okay, but no one from the Ivy League. I mean, it's, it's, it's just unbelievable how this this, this 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 one resentment, this kind of gnawed at his soul for his entire life. But when he got to Whittier, he was kind of this, you know, striving, climbing guy, so he tried to join the one fraternity. And the one fraternity was called the Franklins. And, of course, he's not a fraternal, fraternity kind of guy. He's not clubbable in the greater sense. You know, he's awkward. He's shy. He's poorly spoken. You know, his clothes don't fit. You know, he's a country
0: bumpkin, basically.
1: And well,
0: uh, and that was Dean's reaction on first meeting, too, which was interesting. He also said that his, his handshake was especially weak, right? Weak and limp and just... Yeah, yeah.
1: So, he, so he, here he is, and uh, he can't get into the one fraternity, so he decides to start his own. And this really in my reading, kind of sets the template for his entire political career. He calls his fraternity the Orthogonians, which, you know, is kind of this made-up word uh, that means kind of straight shooter in his, you know, kind of Greek derivation. And um, he basically invites all the rest of the nerdy, uncool kids to join. And lo and behold, they take the school over. It's almost like that movie Revenge of the Nerds. He becomes the class president simply by dint of the fact that he has organized kind of the people who are condescended to and looked down upon by the cool people. And, you know, basically by 1952, when he's giving that famous checker speech, which we can t- more, talk more about, that's how he basically
0: builds his political constituency. Well,
1: that's, in 1969, checkers, he calls it the silent
0: majority. The checker speech is, by jumping off point, because as, I, as in my Daily Coast post, and the reason we have on the little TV set, the checker speech, is that we talk a lot about the Southern strategy. We talk a lot about how racism was critical to his um, identifying his success post the Civil Rights Act of '65, which you talk about eloquently and we'll get to in just a few minutes. But this preceded the um, right. racist strategy. I mean, and I think you that's, know- that's an important point you've made.
1: Yeah, this 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 Orthogonian business, this idea that he appeals to people who feel themselves despised by you know the elite, the arrogant uh, sort of to the manner born folks. Basically, the South, if you think about it, is like this Orthogonian region of the country. I mean, this is this this unbelievable story that Franklin Delano Roosevelt, in like 1935, towards the South, you know, he, he spent a lot of time in the South because he was in Warm Springs, and he said, you know, basically this country, this this, this part of the country is. Economically behind everywhere else, so I'm going to make one of my goals of my administration to bring the South economically and power with the rest of the country. He releases a report on that, and the response to the South is, "Why are you insulting us? Why are you looking down your nose at us?" And they basically, you know, almost like refuse the aid out of this kind of sense of cultural, uh, psychological peak or spite. So you know, the South is is is, is you know perfectly attuned to a Nixonian kind of politics. You know, when he nominates a first one southerner, Haynesworth, and then another one, Carswell, in 1970 for the Supreme Court, uh, one, of, one of them gets knocked out because uh, he basically was um, corrupt. The other one got knocked out because he was basically a segregationist. He gave this unbelievable speech on TV, this angry, angry speech, in which he called it an act of regional bigotry and said that no one... Uh, from the South could ever be nominated to the Supreme Court, basically because those swells in the Senate, those Northerners, those, those snobby Yankees, look down their noses at you. So, you know, he, he just sees these kind of divisions between Franklins and Orthogonians everywhere. And, uh, you know, when it comes to, you know, kind of white people, white middle-class people trying to defend their neighborhoods against these, you know, so-called um, judicial activist judges who are basically trying to enforce the civil rights laws, they become Franklin's, too. They become these snobs who are trying to tell you how to live, and uh, it's, it's a whole new language uh, to describe funny. the American polity.
0: It's one they're still using, of course. Yes, um, and we're still yeah, living uh, in Nixonland. Uh, making, making, yes, we're still living in Nixonland. But don't, don't pull that punchline already. Um, that's oh, I'm calling uh, my shot. That's right. I don't want to. No spoilers. You got to read the book. No, you do have to read the book. I gave one away, though, at a, at a post not long ago. But the point is, is that central to the Republican strategy is something mean, that preceded the Civil Rights Act. The Southern strategy was a way in which they implemented the idea of saying that Democrats are a feat, distant, intellectual, condescending snobs. And that right. happened before um, they said, oh, and by the way, they also love black people. Right.
1: See, and, the, the pieces were kind of wheeled into place in the 1950s. Right. by Richard Nixon, although he kind of forgot his own lesson by 1960 because in 1960, when he was running against Kennedy, he tried to out-Kennedy Kennedy, he tried to look like a statesman, he tried to be suave and debonair, and uh, people were telling him that he should run this kind of gut-punching, kind of Nixonian campaign, and he's like, well, I'm running for the highest office in the land, and i got to erase the assassin image, which is how his vice presidential running mate, who was very much a Franklin, uh, Henry Cabot Lodge, basically advised him before his famous debate with Kennedy. So, you know, he, he kind of turned off the kind of gut-punching, uh, sewer-treading style of politics in that debate, and the results are famous. I mean, Kennedy walked all over him.
0: Um, yes, he, and he lost because he didn't understand TV. But in 1968, he certainly understood TV. Well, or at least he hired Roger Ailes straight Right.
1: He came to power, uh, you know, kind of nas- national prominence in 1952 with this masterful TV performance.
0: But then by yes, that's what we wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about checkers. That's exactly yes. what I, mean. I was getting to in my notes.
1: And, and, so, and checkers well, let's go go with the flow, Jay.
0: Everything. Everything yes. about him. Yes. It encapsulated the Marforgonians um, and it encapsulated the use of television as a means of promoting himself. And everybody has the checker speech in front of them right now. So can you just talk for a bit about the checker speech in fifty two, which preceded everything that we think about with Nixon who was born after fifty-two, which is almost everybody,
1: right? Should I should I start from the beginning about why he gave the
0: speech and what it was all yeah, about? Yeah, you should talk about the um, slush fund and do the history professor thing. And the fact and the fact that Stevenson had the slush fund too. Because okay, I'll get to that. I'll get to fundamental, that. Fundamental, fundamental to Nixon's outrage was that every single thing they persecuted him for, they other people all did all the time.
1: Was his, that was his claim. I mean, it could be
0: very exaggerated, you know, like... But anyway... So, Everybody bugged people. Everybody did... He, yeah. he did it more, maybe. But he was... He did do it more. <laughs> he did do it more. But, but, but so he always thought he was justified he had-
1: because he thought he was always on defense against these, you know, like, these well-born swells who, you know, basically got away with anything because they were well-born so swells. Let's
2: go with right, that. I'll
1: start. So, in 1952, he basically... Uh, he's 40 years old. He's very young. He's my age, basically, and uh, he has just uh, uh, basically successfully uh, got Alger Hiss, this communist spy slash State Department mandarin, thrown in jail for perjury. So he's kind of a national hero, the greatest red hunter in the land. And Dwight Eisenhower, who's you know quite old, decides to make this up and comer his running mate. But lo and behold, the New York Post, which used to be a very liberal paper, by the way, um, published this article about this slush fund he had. And the accusation was that uh, he was living in high style, basically supported by these rich California donors. And it looked like the people who were running the Republican Party, who were very much these kind of Eastern snobs and Wall Streeters, they were the ones who were kind of uh, running the Eisenhower campaign, wanted him to resign. And Eisenhower himself, like a lot of powerful people, hated to fire people. So he basically left Nixon t- t- to twist in the wind. And what they eventually ended up doing was giving him a half an hour of television time in which it was kind of implicitly understood that he would resign and throw his support behind the ticket and be a good Republican. But Richard Nixon never gave up. I mean, he's like Hillary Clinton that way. He just fought to the end no matter what the fight was. And um, so he went on TV and he did something absolutely astonishing. He basically twisted the charge around, uh, the charge being that he had a very specific kind of slush fund. And he said the charge is that they're saying I'm a rich man living beyond, you know, my means. And so what he did was he literally kind of opened up his balance book and, uh, described all the debts he owed, all the money he owed his parents, how modest his car was, how modest his house was, you know, how much he owed on his mortgage. And, uh, you know, he added these, you know, absolutely fantastic, uh, details. Like, um, he said at one point, uh, my wife, uh, Pat, who is standing off to the side like a, uh, good Republican, Stepford wife, uh, doesn't have a fancy mink coat. And that was code, that was, that was a code phrase because the Democrats were, uh, basically mired in a corruption scandal. Uh, Truman's chief of staff had supposedly accepted a bribe of a, of a fur coat. Like and, fur coat and he said that, uh, that's right. And by the way, he said, Pat doesn't have a mink coat. So then he could say, well, you must have been smearing the Democrats for this, you know, um, allegation that they took a Vicuna coat. Then he could say, no, I wasn't referring to that, just like Bush could say I wasn't referring to Barack Obama when he said some Democrats, blah, 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 want to be appeasers. Right? This is, this is is These are all out of the Nixon playbook, if you follow me. So um, he said, Pat doesn't have a mink coat. She has a res- respectable Republican cloth coat. And... The unbelievable thing about that speech was, basically, until that day, uh, the, the 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 stereotype of Republicans was that they were the ones who wore mink coats, and Democrats were the ones that wore cloth coats. And with this absolutely baldy, gutsy, you know, looking America in the eye live television appearance, he succeeded for the first time and turning the Democrats into the Stabs, which was easy to do, by the way, because he was running against a guy named Adlai Stevenson, who was a son of millionaires, and turned the Republicans into the -the salt-of-the-earth working people. And, of course, they've been running that game ever since. You know, uh, George Bush with his cowboy boots and his fishing pond and all the rest.
0: Pork yes. No, that's what I want to make clear, is that the moment at which the Republicans, at which Nixon recognized he could drive a wedge... Into the blue-collar, blue-collar Democratic voting block was in that speech in '52 and before the um, the racism thing was exploited and before the Southern Strategy happened. Now I want to talk a little bit now about control.
1: He Um, loved control.
0: He was obsessive about control. That's right. And and checkers was part of that, but but in his early stages he was obsessed with keeping control of everything. And that was true even when he was vice president, which was very frustrating for him. So can you talk about that for a little bit, and then we're going to talk about uh, Watts. Interesting.
1: Uh, He uh, was treated like a lot of vice presidents was treated. He wasn't given the time of day day by the president. He famously complained that uh, he never got to go inside Eisenhower's farmhouse in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. You know, he was always left outside when, you know, he went in with Mamie to, you know, meet with the real important people. And um, when he ran for president in 1960, one of the reporters asked Eisenhower, uh, can you name the most important thing that Dick Nixon has contributed to the administration? And Eisenhower had a, made a very famous, basically, gaffe. And he said, uh, well, if you give me a week, I'll think of something. <laughs> And, uh, you know, this reminds me of, you know, the kind of um, aloofness that he probably experienced growing up with this kind of very arrogant, distant father, you know, to get psychobiographical. And, um, you know, it was just, you know, agony for him, just like being vice president under JFK was agony for Lyndon Johnson. Because he was someone...
0: Well, under Lyndon Johnson with Bobby, under, under, under JFK with Bobby Kennedy there. Right. Right.
1: And he was always someone who kinda of raged for what he couldn't have or control. So I mean you can just imagine this, you know, one more resentment just kind of burning in his gut. And uh, you know, basically he develops this, this drive and determination to to win the top spot, but then he loses in nineteen sixty. The election is so close he loses by one half a vote per precinct across the United States. That's how close it is.
0: Yeah, and maybe even in Illinois he might have won, who knows? No, that's nonsense.
2: Uh, that was something that
0: uh, I don't really know. I don't. I, I actually have not looked into that. You're saying there's nothing there for that?
2: Cause no, I, know I mean that
0: there are precincts in Texas and other places where. Um, where Even he, if you won Illinois, that wouldn't have been enough to win the election. And of course, nothing was clean on his side either. I mean, what I've read is that. Well, we have
1: we have a saying. You know, I live in Chicago. We have a saying in Illinois: for every dead person who votes for the Democrats uh, upstate in Chicago, a pig votes
0: for the Republicans downstate. Right, and the. the you know, he had plenty of things that he was doing, and there's. No well, I mean, David
1: David Greenberg, the, the also a Nixon historian, wrote this absolutely uh, brilliant expose for Slate a couple of years ago. Because there's this myth that he graciously conceded that John F. Kennedy and didn't con- con- contest the election. That's
0: yeah, like the EPA, you know.
1: That was absolutely false. They didn't. They didn't call him tricky, Dick, dick for nothing.
0: No, no question about that. I want to switch now to talk about. Where you start the book? I'm, I'm I'm going in more chronological order than you. You use a little literary gimmick of putting in a dramatic moment as the start of the book, which is nice. Um, but I want to I start things with a bang, literally. Everybody does who writes well, and you write extremely well. I'm going to read for like a whole thirty seconds here. Okay. From what Lyndon Johnson said to Congress on March 15. He said it is wrong deadly wrong to deny any of your fellow Americans the right to vote in this country. There is no issue of states' rights or national rights. There is only the struggle for human rights. Their cause must be our cause, too, because it is not just Negroes, but really it is all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. Then, you say, stunningly, he raised his arms in the air and evoked the slogan of a movement that was not too long ago perceived as a preeminent irritant to America's national unity. And we shall overcome. There followed the silence of a reaction too stunned from your applause. Martin Luther King cried. Senators cried. Southern legislators cornered LBJ's befuddled mentor, Richard Russell, and demanded an explanation for his protege's betrayal of his native South. They look like heartless old jackasses. Now, that was what happened five days before Watts.
1: Yeah, I mean, getting the chronology a little different, um, that was a speech he gave in March of 1965 uh, after uh, Martin Luther King and his marchers were beaten at the Edmund Pettus Bridge, also live on TV. So the the thing you're referring to is... First uh, first or second day in August, he signed the Voting Rights Act.
2: Ah, that He basically
1: Im- implored uh, Congress to pass, and, you know, they did. <laughs> you know, they fell into line because of this marvelous, glorious rhetoric, because it just seemed like humanity, you know, was on the march, and, and, and justice would roll like waters. As, you know, excuse me, Martin Luther King said he signed the bill in a glorious ceremony uh, underneath the Capitol Dome in the Capitol Rotunda, Martin Luther King was by his side, and um, the words he spoke then were absolutely gorgeous, too. He said like something like the... Talk for five seconds, and I'll find those words and, and, and read them.
0: But, uh, um, but you're... I'm sorry, I mis- I misread this. Oh, I see. August 6th. He said. Right, right. So let me let, let me find you what he actually... But, I mean, you know, this kind of... The point is
1: this kind of rhetoric was like the coin of the realm in, in the mid-'60s under Lyndon Johnson. He said... Um, uh, he, he intoned about the slaves who, quote, came in darkness and they came in chains. Today we strike away the last major shackle of those fierce and ancient bonds. And uh, the New York Times' uh, agenda-setting pundit, Scotty Reston, his response to that was that Lyndon Johnson was getting everything through Congress but the abolition of the Republican Party, and he hadn't tried that yet.
2: Yeah, that's and, on that page, actually.
1: Yeah, and um, this this was the great society. This was the idea that liberalism was ascended and was never going to end. And the thing that really astonishes me is the response of uh, Martin Luther King's deputy, James Bevel, who said that Lyndon Johnson has just signed the civil rights movement out of existence. You know, kind of our work here is done. You know, we've achieved racial transcendence. And yes. And then the dramatic moment that really kind of opens the book happens. Five days later, Watts is, is basically in flames. It looks like black people are burning down Los
0: Angeles. And well, and now, part of your point is that for the first time, people are seeing this live on TV. I was just going to
1: say that. Um, KTLA, the the TV station in Los Angeles, was the first ever news cal- helicopter. And uh, basically, when the, car, when the TV station sent in their vans... They were stoned. So KTLA is like, well maybe we should use this helicopter, which had really only been used for kind of furry and kind of you know, sort of uh stupid kind of gossipy stories before. And they were really worried that um that snipers would shoot the helicopter down. And in fact they did take some pot shots from the ground. And uh so people were able to watch this riot live on T V and the the T V announcers were almost kinda of giving this demonic play by play. And uh KTLA release their feeds to the national networks so the whole nation is suddenly watching uh, what looks like uh, the law of the jungle savagery in American city and you know that was the moment at which um, American history kind of turns and pivots on a dime and people begin thinking well geez maybe these civil rights laws aren't such a great idea after all
0: um, and and but that was because people really weren't well, as you say, we're cognizant of the degree of conflict and the degree of segregation and the degree of difference yes. that was in place. And yeah. that when it was exposed, the reaction was, oh no, Where'd this Nixon, come from? let's slow down. Yeah. Let's yeah. fix it. Let's slow down. Right. And Nixon exploited that feeling of, oh no, we're not this way.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: It can't be the case that we treat people like this. Well, um, basically, by you know
1: 1967, he's 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 laying out uh, what, what was called then a, a law and order platform, and uh, he's basically saying, you know, he, he says that the, the the first civil right of all Americans is to be free from domestic violence.
0: Yeah, so he's that's- completely
1: making that his uh, his appeal.
0: I'm sorry, I meant to say, and I didn't say it as clear as, as, I sh- as I should have. What he did is he realized that people were basically and profoundly um, committed to uh, not freedom and if there was going to be trouble. Right. Well, I mean, there's a very
1: kind of complicated uh, argument that one has to have at this point because... Um, what I'm trying to do in the book is um, kind of respect ordinary white Americans' uh, you know, reasonable desire for um, some modicum of, of, of stability. And the crime the crime rate was exploding. You know, um, people were
2: rioting. You know, there things were people, really were.
0: There were there were people. And again, one of the things that the book's been great for me to remember is that, for example, Kent State wasn't you know, girls putting flowers into soldiers' guns, it was the burning down of an ROTC building and prevention of firemen being able to put out the fire. Yeah,
2: they beat out the fireman was six.
0: This wasn't this wasn't a peaceful protest in every in every event. And so while my recollection was before I'd read the book, um, Neil Young's Ohio song, in fact there were a lot of provocations from the left.
1: Right, but of course nothing to excuse, you know, guys kneeling down and crouching and shooting into a crowd and, you know, shooting 13 people, some of them weren't even, who weren't even involved in the protest.
0: Which, but the law, um, which, what it found was completely, uh, the right. Was... And then a
1: grand jury basically exonerates the, uh, National Guardsmen and indicts some of the students. And, but you have to realize the National Guardsmen were basically the same age as the students. These were kids who couldn't go to college because, like Richard Nixon, they didn't have the money or the wherewithal to do so. And they were in the National Guard to get out of Vietnam, just like a lot of the college students were in college to get out of Vietnam. And they saw these kids spitting on the privileges that they they were never able to get. And uh, that's where a lot of the anger and resentment of the National Guardsmen came from. And you saw that in every campus protest. The police couldn't believe that these kids who seemed like they had it made were spitting on their privilege.
0: Right. And again, that goes back to the central theme of the Orthogonians and Nixon's identification of um groups of people who um just were saying, you know, what the fuck? I mean, what else do these people want? But this leads me to Newark. Newark. All of your all of your reviewers, everybody who's read the book, even George Will, who I'm portraying today, in in a beautifully rendered Oh, that's your your avatar? Yeah, my avatar is George Will. I thought Wilson. you looked like a school nerd. Beautifully rendered by P.B. Recreant, who's a huge friend of the program. Um, I didn't know it was Newark riots. I, you know, I was, you know, whatever it was, 6, 9, I don't remember when it was. but 67. Yeah, 67. Can you, and one of the things that every reviewer from Tristero to um, George Will has commented on, that I've read anyway, is your, description of the Newark Newark riot so can you go through how it happened that it was in Newark and what happened in Newark well one thing is I have to give credit where credit is
1: due um a lot of people make it seem like this is like original work on my part there was a book that came out in 1971 called no cause for indictment by a guy named Ron Parambo and you know all this stuff is from his book he basically spent four years interviewing everyone in Newark about what happened in that crazy riot in 1967. And by the way, when his book came out in 1971, because he shows up again, once the book comes out, up, he shows up again in, the, in my book, uh, the Newark police tried to assassinate him. But um, he was a very sad guy who ended up spending a lot of time in jail. And actually, um, Melville House, uh, a, a independent press, based in New Jersey just came out with a new edition of that book. So if you think my accounts of the Newark riot is good, you gotta pick up No Cause for Indictment. And again, once again, just, just, just like the, the National Guardsmen weren't indicted for shooting people, No Cause for Indictment refers to the fact that basically the Newark police had, the Newark police and the state police and the National Guard pacified this riot within, within a day and then purely for reasons of retribution literally began shooting into crowds and assassinating people. One by one by one. It was, a, it was an American Holocaust. I think the death toll was like 32 people. And then I tell this unbelievably touching, touching story about how, I think it was ABC News, um, had this really heartrending footage of one of these innocent funerals. His name was Uncle Daddy. And they wouldn't show it on the news because the producers said, you know, we can't glorify rioters. And that was, you know, the, the level of, 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 you know, kind of hatred and mutual recrimination America had had come to by that point. Um, because, you know, the riot wasn't exactly innocent either. I mean, these really were folks, you know, smashing into liquor stores and carting away cases of beer.
0: Well, that's one of the things you make very clear all the way through this, is that it's not like the left was sitting there quietly, you know, chanting um, Gandhi as- Right, and, and, and
1: Tom Hayden, you know, wrote a book basically arguing that these these people who were you know smashing windows and and, and you know like uh, you know looting stores were the vanguard of a revolution.
0: Well, you know, the revolution were, word was used a lot, and yeah. and you know the only way we remember it right now is in the Beatles song, but um, there were guys running around with automatic rifles, brandishing them, talking about revolution,
1: carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, if you will.
0: Yes.
2: Who
1: is, by the way, you know, at that point the Cultural Revolution was going on, and uh, you know, kind of intellectuals were being beaten at random in the streets of Shanghai. You know,
0: well, the systematic the systematic repression and brutalization of intellectuals, which Nixon would have been all right with for the most part.
1: Um, well, he would have been ambivalent about it because, of course, he. He hated intellectuals, but he also wanted to be recognized as an intellectual. So That's kind of the signal, of kind of Nixonian transit, because you know he's an orthogonian, but he really wants to be a Franklin, and he bears this resentment in Nietzsche's terms that he basically can't admit that which he desires. So he kind of uh, it's turned inward into this you know, kind of self-loathing and uh, this kind of rage to control.
0: Now I'm off my notes now, but one of the things that really comes are you off your meds though? I uh, no meds here. And he was a drunk too. That's an interesting thing I wanted to get to, but maybe I won't. I won't. But he—it's hard to. One of the things you really get across is just how brilliantly shrewd the man was. Yeah. Um, And he really was. I mean, you know, the 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 the, the strategizing he did before the sixty before the sixty-six election, and before the seventy election, in which the sixty-six election went beautifully for him, the seventy election went badly for him. But the '66 election was incredibly insightful. He had people writing about his going out and campaigning in bizarrely, in bizarre places where nobody expected to campaign. When of course he was going to places where there were soft seats, what we would call purple zone, purple seats now.
1: Yeah. Um, basically, after the 1964 election. Uh, in which all these liberals were swept in on Lyndon Johnson's coattails. Uh, and these were the guys who passed the Voting Rights Act, and these were the guys who passed Medicaid and Medicare and, and the National Endowment for the Humanities and Head, State, Head Start and all these great liberal legislation. You know, they were basically,
0: um... They were, elected, congressmen, they were elected on the coattails of Kennedy's death, frankly.
1: Right, of Kennedy's death and of Lyndon Johnson's, you know, kind of landslide victory. And they were elected from Republican districts. So what the pundit said was, wow, conservatism is dead. It's never going to survive to live another day. Basically, places like Iowa are going to be electing liberals, you know, from here to eternity. And the only person who really kind of saw through the shallowness of that interpretation was Richard Nixon, who would go to every, basically in 1966, He'd go to every district where one of these LBJ coattail freshmen had won in the Republican area, and he would he would campaign for the Republican. He was basically running to get his seat back, often the same guy who had lost in 1964. And almost everyone he campaigned for won. And he totally had bamboozled the New York Times because the day after the election, they said, well, Richard Nixon was the reason all these Republicans won, and the, re- the, the, the 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 evidence for that is, you know, no 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 one campaigns in a in a in a race that they already think the guy is automatically going to win. You know, Nixon wouldn't have bothered to come to Iowa if he you know, thought the guy already had it in the bag. But lo and behold, in he completely—that's that, completely what he did.
0: Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that's really striking throughout it is that he um, is way smarter than the pentarchy, and they keep... we're really stupid anyway. Well, and it's the same thing now. I mean, they're still talking about, Broder is still talking about, you know, some centrist whatever trying to fix things when, you know, the, the country's not run that way.
1: You just, you just turned into a naked woman?
0: I hope not. No, I didn't. Yeah, you did. I did? Am I a naked yeah. woman
1: now? Now you're back to
0: being George Will. Oh, good. Well, is that greasing? Um That happens. No, it wasn't greasing. It just happens.
2: <laughs> happens to
0: me all the time. Uh, I've heard that, but I, I haven't told Kathy yet. Um, now, what really struck him, though, is the loss of control that happened during Vietnam. Yeah. I mean, you know, he had it all worked out, and the Tet Offensive just showed up. He and, meaning? And Nixon. Nixon had, you know, he had his plan for Vietnam, and that was to have, well, if you read the Haldeman Diaries anyway, he... Was trusting Kissinger to be able to use threats of complete destruction and dismay. Right. Well, the Tet
1: Offensive was in
0: '68. That was when
1: Lyndon Johnson was president. Right. But right. what, 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 what? Basically, the fantasy that you know, basically, all the the hardcore cold warriors believe was that if they bombed North Vietnam savagely enough, they could get them to stop supporting the insurgency in South Vietnam. In fact, it was the opposite. The more they bombed North Vietnam, the more they became determined that they were fighting an imperialist war for their very national survival. And, uh, the more determined they became, uh, like a hornet's nest, and you know, the more you stir it, the more aggressive they become. And so Nixon just bombed and bombed and bombed and bombed and bombed, and it was completely counterproductive. You know, by the time, uh, the 1972 election rolled around, uh, Norman Mailer was able to say that there were six million Vietnamese Either exiled
0: or killed. Right, and and Nixon's view of this, from back in the conversation he had with Leon Garman in what sixty
1: six. Yeah, I, I haven't really figured out whether that was sixty five or sixty six. But sixty five or sixty six, he he um, basically told uh, a rich donor who told who, who related this to Len, Leonard Garment, who was one of his aides that Richard Nixon didn't believe the Vietnam War was winnable, that he didn't believe America could achieve its war aims of, of an independent South Vietnam that could survive without American military might. And lo and behold, it's, you know, six, seven years later, and he's still prosecuting this war that he admits can't be won militarily. I mean, it's, um, it's the moral enormity of this uh, blows
0: my freaking mind. Well, the moral enormity of. Also, Chuck Schumer saying, okay, if the Republicans want to continue this war, well, we'll just let it go. Is, I haven't heard that. Is that recent? Um, he said after the 2006 elections that he really expected the Republicans would, would refuse to go along with the president, and they didn't. And I honestly believe the reason that the Democrats have not taken stronger positions is because if they don't have Republican support, they won't do it. And if the Republicans really want to... Tie themselves to the president's policy in Iraq, then that's that's a political decision. But let's go back to this. Um, one of the reasons that Vietnam actually ended was because there were Republicans who were opposed, like McCloskey, and McCloskey drove Nixon crazy.
1: I I had an unbelievable dialogue with a St. Louis, if you want to call it a dialogue, St. Louis right wing talk radio host. They've been booking me on a lot of talk right wing talk radio. And this was before Kennedy's illness, and he kept on ranting about how the Democrats and Ted Kennedy surrendered in Vietnam. And I said, "Have you ever heard of Mark Hatfield?" Yes, and this guy absolutely. had no idea who Mark Hatfield was. You can,
0: you can tell him, Jimbo,
1: who's Mark Hatfield?
0: Mark Hatfield was a senator from Oregon, right? Yes. Who was an strongly, evangelical Christian? Strongly against war. Strongly against. He yeah.
1: co-sponsored a bill with George McGovern, oh,
0: right. McGovern. to.
1: Basically, end the war in six months, lock, stock, and barrel. And um, the the uh, Senator Aiken from Vermont was the guy who said, also a Republican, George Aiken, George Aiken,
0: Republican, Vermont.
1: Yeah, we should declare victory and go home. So this really was, um, the, you know, basically one of the things I mean when I say we're still living with the divisions of Nixonland is the idea that the parties are kind of aligned into these left wing and right wing blocks really wasn't the case in the '60s.
0: Well, what we mean by left and right wing, what's, what's changed, and, and again, this is because of Nixon. Um, the recognition that there existed um, a division in the country that, frankly, is regional more than anything else, didn't exist in Nixon's time, didn't exist in Kennedy's time. If you look at Kennedy's electoral map, you know, it looks nothing like the one that Hillary's talking about. It looks nothing like the one that we've been hearing from Bob Shrum and the other strategists. Um, the electoral map now looks like Republicans in the South trying to reach out for wherever they can get, somewhere else. Well, as, as
1: Digby points out, it basically looks like uh, the map of the people who seceded during the Civil War. Plus Appalachia, yeah, as okay. Digby points out. Yeah. So
0: but can, people, can said, people call in and,
1: and, and can I take questions from, from, from questions. the rabble out there?
0: Questions come in by IM, and I haven't seen ah. any. Folks, please do. IM with questions. We've got 14 minutes left. And I'd like to talk about reviews at this point, point because really a big deal. and I get two reviews I want to talk about. One of them is George Wills, and that's why I'm sitting here in these funny glasses, and the other one is um, Traceros. but I'd like to start with George Wills. Um, Will, in the New York Times book review, um, essentially says, well, what you're saying isn't true, that The Republicans weren't really trying to do this, and this really wasn't a program, and this is, uh, you know, what you're saying is false. There aren't any kind of plans like this inside the Republican agenda. And I find that kind of surprising that he would say that so bluntly, but of course he needs to. Where to begin? (laughs) Well, you know, he... he, Well, let's let's hold it. Let's let's stop and just note that he said it was a page-turner. He right. said that the Newark riots discussion was impossible to put down, and he did give credit where credit was due for the quality of writing. But hey, Jim, well, people done. are saying you should log in again because your avatar has crashed. Ah, that could be. I'm not in the greatest space. Thank you. But we're still on. Yeah, we're still on audio-wise. Yep. But no. are you
2: all
1: having fun? Talk about George Will.
2: <laughs> uh,
1: talk about George Will. Well, The most fascinating thing about George Will was he called me a condescending liberal, and he made an argument about how condescending liberals are, but every example he used came from my book and my own critique of how condescending liberals were in the 60s and the 70s. And he wound up to this rather fanciful argument that I was wrong to say that these divisions that uh, Nixon etched for us still kind of guide guide our political logic. The only problem being the very fact that the only thing he has to say about a liberal is that they're condescending comes straight out of the Nixon playbook and was supported by no evidence in the book he was reviewing. You know, I mean, it's like,
0: yeah. The whole history, the the whole idea is, you know, everybody's Adelaide Stevenson. Everybody is sneering. This is Nixon's, this is the Franklin's character. Yeah, and this is the guy
1: with the bow tie. He uses eight syllable words, you know, calling Uh, us the snobs.
0: Uh, yes, well, George Will does do that, and um, and it's it's telling, of course, about the media that an operative like him, an operative like Bill Kristol, someone who actively pursues the party's interest, unlike someone like David Brooks, who is not actively doing things like reading briefing books in debates, it's treated as an actual journalist, um, nonetheless talks this way. Um, but I was glad to have the attention. Oh, no, front page is good. But, but the thing that got me is that he can't admit, he cannot admit that this is the program. He cannot say, yes, in fact, what Republicans are doing is embarking on a systematic process of identifying ways in which to drive a wedge between the blue-collar Democrats and the um, dirty fucking hippies. But that is their strategy, and it has been since Nixon. Silla? So, uh... Pardon? that's, uh, that's uh, Latin for I mean oh that, I thought you were saying so like Dick Cheney when he was talking about how nobody wants <laughs> right so yeah right <laughs> no uh, yeah straight up okay so what about okay. uh, Tassero so, Jesus General wants to know what's next for you Reagan, <laughs> what's the next volume I'm coming to Yakima no uh,
1: the next volume is, is uh, going to be from 1973 to 1970 1980 and Basically, the premise is, you know, we lost the war. The American economy was in shambles. Uh America had to reckon with the notion that it wasn't the 800-pound gorilla in the world. And rather than sort of facing up to these traumas and working through them, we chose Reagan. We chose the smile. And, uh you know, I think that we're kind of living with the consequences of that. I mean, we never did reckon with um, the tragedy of having an economy that's, you know, reliant on more and more warfare to be healthy. You know, we never reckoned with um, if there are better ways to organize our society. You know, we basically shrunk from that very difficult work and chose fantasy, sunny optimism, Ronald Reagan. So... I'm going to try and make that point in 800 pages, unless, of course, I study the evidence and and, uh, the evidence tells me otherwise.
0: Now, the other review I wanted to talk about was um, Tristero's. And we've got about nine minutes, so please, more questions, please bring them in. And we're we're very happy to ask them. Um, And Tristero pointed out something really interesting in his his review. Um, He pointed out that one way you could really kind of understand what happened was to watch the Ed Sullivan Beatles episode. I totally agreed. I, I wrote, I wrote a I saw um, your comment, yeah. yeah, I saw your comment, but I, it, it blew me away because he's exactly right. You've got, you know, guys with plates, guys spinning plates on long, long, on long pieces of string, not string, but um, wood, and you've got the Beatles. Right. And the Beatles are being kind of dissed. Absolutely. I mean, he missed one of the best details, which is basically that um, one of these... No, no, let's go back, because everybody hasn't read this. So what what Tracero said was what?
1: Well, that basically um, this brave new world of kind of youth culture and hipness and cultural vitality coexisted with this unbelievably square and ossified 1950s world. And so the forces that the Beatles represented uh Were kind of difficult for the forces that the 50s represented to assimilate, and the contrast when you watch it on the screen is so profound. You're like, well, how could you know the forces of vitality in the culture not believe that there wouldn't be a backlash against everything that was exciting and new
0: in the 60s? Well, because does that make so- sense?
1: Does that kind of nail it?
0: it doesn't really nail because it, it's hard. Um the thing was that the Beatles were something effervescent and, and vital it was happening outside of Ed Sullivan's theater and he felt the need to have them in. That's right. And it created public resentment. Had yes, exactly. And resentment. Ed Sullivan resented them.
1: Absolutely. And what I was the point I was going to make is after they performed this really kind of dippy, you know, sort of lounge singer guy uh, I think it was, he performed She Loves You, Yeah, 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 but in a totally mocking way. Like, aren't these people ridiculous? You know, it was just so defensive. And um, so, um, it was like all these young people are, are, are trying to put one over on you. They're trying to pull one over on you. And that was the attitude that Richard Nixon was constantly, constantly deferring to and constantly marshalling when he would say, you know, the real stalwarts of society are the silent majority you know not these shouters
0: you know mondo tomorrow asks again what's the connection between the beatles and nixon and the point is i think mondo that nixon spoke to the people who didn't get the beatles is that fair i think so and, yeah. and but
1: even even more so. And not just the, the people who not just the people who didn't get the Beatles, but the people who were reading their Time magazine that they were supposed to get the Beatles. And if they didn't get the Beatles, there was something wrong with them.
0: And and Nixon's insight, and this goes back to nineteen fifty two, was that there were more of them than there were of anybody else.
1: But they weren't showing up in Time magazine, because Time magazine was trying to put its finger on that which was, you know, new and exciting and dynamic
0: and And so Nixon's insight was that there was a silent majority, and one of the things that's really compelling about the book is that you recognize that he was right about this yeah i mean it it it
1: it it, it places one in a very difficult moral position i mean in a sense, if you say Nixon was right about this, well, was he right that people should have been really mad at Martin Luther King? You know, Martin Luther King was the same kind of imposition on people's kind of settled routines, too. But, of course, Martin Luther King, and I guess the Beatles, too, were true
0: and right and beautiful, you know? But um, Nixon was right that he could win elections. by "Yeah, he was people. certainly right about that. Yeah. These people are scum, and you should stop them from any power in your society.
1: Yes, and that's why Nixon inspired this... Bottomless rage uh, among liberals because he um, was kind of stealing their constituency from them in a way they didn't really understand.
0: Well, because they they thought they cared about the principles they were concerned about, and they cared more about the bread and butter issues that FDR had used to construct the right. coalition.
1: Right, and and the the the, the kind of inner kind of dialectical tragedy of the Roosevelt coalition and and is that basically the liberals, you know, us, we succeeded in creating the first mass, broad-based middle class. We basically turned factory workers into people who had vacation cabins, you know, families that didn't have electricity into you know, families that were able to live pretty damn decent lives without anything more than a high school education. But once people achieved that kind of economic security, some of them began thinking like Republicans. How can we protect what we have? Uh that was really the message of the checker speech. You know, basically, um that the the inner dynamics of the Roosevelt coalition had changed from how can we get into the middle class to how can we stay in the middle class and even more so, how can we keep these people uh who want to clamor into our middle class from disturbing our comfortable existence?
0: Well that's and that's part of the The unions were weakening and there was pressure on skilled labor and the idea of affirmative action was terrifying and there were other things that led the not college educated blue collar workers who had been part of the democratic center. I mean, as represented by George Meany, who freaked out in 1968. Yeah, he was Um, an absolute racist, too. Yes, well, the racist thing is a big part of it, isn't it?
1: Yeah, um, and you and know, racism that now, is another word for you know, um, stay out of my neighborhood. I like what I have.
0: Well, you know? talk about Jump Chicago. From. I mean, that's one of the things you go on at some length is the way in which um, daily controlled Chicago had to do with preventing any kind of real integration happening from essentially shanty towns that black people were living with versus you know the equivalent of Archie Bunker's Queen's House that had been developed for white people in the fifties. 20s, 20s. Thank you. Yeah,
1: and uh, by the 1950s, when uh, all these African Americans came from the South to work in the factories, there was literally no housing for them. Right. So they built these awful, awful housing projects. You know, another great book I rely on is uh, "Making the Second Ghetto" by Hirsch, and uh, you know, it just it, it just demonstrates that in the 1920s, when these white factory workers came from Eastern Europe, they built these gorgeous little bungalows for them. And when the blacks came from the South, they built these horrifying housing projects for them. And people wanted to move out of the the horrifying, overcrowded housing projects and into the bungalows. And the people in the bungalows basically attacked them with uh, a feral, vicious violence that, led Martin Luther King to say that
0: people in Mississippi should come to Chicago to learn how to hate. Right. One of the things this illustrates, folks, and i get like 45 seconds left, so Rick, thank you very much. Very much having, enjoyed having you here, and um, you know, we'll have the podcast out in you know, tomorrow or the next day. Um, thank you very much for joining us, folks, and thank you, Rick, for joining us. And one of the things this illustrates is that you say one word, Chicago, and you find a rich, complicated thing to talk about, and this book is filled with that kind of richness, that kind of commitment to detail, that kind of oh, oh. By the way, Chicago goes back to the 20s and and from there. So, Rick, thank you so much for joining us, and the book is fabulous. I hope it sells as well as it should. It's selling great,
1: but you know, still makes a great Father's Day
0: gift. Wonderful. Thank you, Rick. This is Jimbo Hoyer from Second Life signing off. I'll be joining you in World now.